Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we have Ashley Whitaker, the Roy and Carol Christensen Curator of Religious Art at BYU Museum of Art in Provo, where she has overseen the openings of at least three major exhibitions this past year, two that have opened in the past month alone. Before BYU, Whitaker was the Associate Curator and Registrar at Springville Museum of Art. There, she was at the center of some of the region's most anticipated contemporary art events, including the annual Spring Salon and the annual Spiritual and Religious Art Competitions. Whitaker graduated from BYU summa cum laude with a bachelor's degree in art history and a master's degree in art history and curatorial studies, having received the prestigious Graduate Research Award. Her art history research has taken her through Western Europe, including multiple trips to the United Kingdom. We've got something in common. We should talk about the UK. And her museum experience includes internships at the BYU Museum of Art and at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. We are very happy to have her here today, especially in the middle of these openings of two shows. So thank you for making the time and welcome, Ashley. Thank you, Micah. I am delighted to be here. I, you're delighted whenever I meet you. You are one of the most delighted people I've ever met. And it's a delight always to talk with you. And I'm thrilled with the pieces you've chosen. First of all, I'm, I'm going to let you introduce them. Tell me the okay. piece you have chosen today. What is um, it and who is it by? I, I've actually chosen two pieces. Okay. Two triptychs by the artist Trevor Salvi, both of which are in the BYU Museum of Art collection. And... I had to go with both of them, first of all, because I see them as a set. I think they're in dialogue with each other. So the first one And these is, are on our website, by the way, zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. So you'll be able to look at them if you're doing it. So go. So sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just no, want to make no, sure people can pull fine. them up while we're talking about them. Yes, please do. Um, they're visually just, just wonderful. So the first one is called Intercession at Gethsemane. And Trevor painted it in 1981, and it's huge. It's a triptych. It's probably 72 inches by 144. Big piece. Um, the second one is called Jesus and Mary, the moment after, and it was actually painted before the Gethsemane piece. It was painted in 1975, and it's mm. similar. Three panels, very large in scale, um, oil on panel works. So let's describe them. There are some people who no doubt will be familiar with Trevor Southey. And, and, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about his, his um, career and, 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 and his following. But there are a lot of he's not a household name for, some, for, for, for a lot of people. So these works, if you had to describe their style, how would you describe them? Ooh, that's a great, great question. And... I, I hope I can create an adequate word picture, an adequate <laughs> image of what these are, yeah. because with Trevor's work, he, I mean, throughout his life, beginning as he'll speak of being a young boy, a teenager, and being drawn to the Renaissance artists, Leonardo, Michelangelo. And so there is this wonderful sense. Um, he's very focused on the human form, and he's also influenced by richness of symbolism that through 
influences like the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. So his works are very conceptual. Um, they they speak of you know, the human figure always embodying some psychology, some part of the nobility of the human soul. They're so expressive in that way, but they are very rarely, never narrative. Um, and with these, I, I became familiar with them as I began at BYU, and they have become for me such profound meditations on the atonement, on Jesus Christ's role within the atonement. And to describe them, um, they are the first one, we'll say, Intercession at Gethsemane, it's three panels. And the left panel starts with these two figures of Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are, it's almost as if they hang there, kind of limp. They're not standing, they're, you know, kind of bent. To me, it's as if they are in limbo. They're they're almost lifeless. Um, this idea of you know, they, they have been spiritually cut off. They are no longer, you know, tethered to heaven as they were, what will become of them. And hmm. as he was executing these works, you know, he said he didn't want to put any of these in a contemporary setting of a spatial setting that we might recognize. So there's abstract, rich chroma in the background of dark reds, dark blacks, blues. Um, but there's Adam and Eve, and between them kind of these corpse-like forms almost, um, you see this red, just a searing line of red paint that go between Adam and Eve, and then it goes up and extends into the central panel, and that is where we see the figure of Christ. And he too is not in a setting. There's no Gethsemane tree. There's no rock. Um, the figure of Christ is frontal. Um, he's draped from the waist down. He kneels. His head is turned very drastically looking at Adam and Eve, um, and his musculature is just taut. And to me, it embodies this confrontation that was Gethsemane. I mean, how mm. do we really depict um, the conflict, the agony, you know, this, this moment where Christ is absorbing, he's taking on sin and guilt and hatred and pain and you know, all the contradictions of mortality at once. And you see just his whole physique is taut and he is in agony. Um, and looking, I'm so struck by his hands. One fist is clenched. There's this resolution, this bracing gesture. And then one hand is open, palm to us, that gesture of submission. That It's hard not to think of that as... he. He is so classical in that sense, right? There is this very mm -hmm. abstract placement of his figures in a, on a, a, what was, I once heard somebody say that Trevor Southey was the only abstract figurative artist they knew. Yeah. But he said it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. And there, it, it, it reminds me a little bit, and I don't know if anybody else would make this connection. This just may be Micah's connection. But I think of El Greco a little bit. And what I mean by that is El Greco is El Greco's figures were all recognizably figures, but they had very little relationship often to the physical space they were in. And the moment you removed them from that physical space, you could make symbolic connections. Once you didn't have to have Christ 
standing obviously in an underneath an olive tree in a garden. His body could be the full symbolic expression mm-hmm. of whatever was happening. And you weren't focusing on whether or not, you know, where's the natural source of light in this or or what is 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 that a is that a tr- olive tree? Did he actually are those actually stones from from a such and such a period or what did they use as props in this? You don't worry about any of those considerations when you're looking at a Trevor Southey. All you're starting to think about, and this is the power of putting him in an abstract background. Exactly. You're looking at a closed fist and an open hand and that tense body and that symbolic line drawing him to Adam and Eve. You've got you've got um you, you, you've got um, initiation and the consequence, right? You've mm-hmm. got the action and the consequence. And if you had to put that in a realistic moment, how could you, right? That's the genius of, of, this, of the Southie approach, mm-hmm. right? Is you can, you can go directly to these symbols, but you can use the familiar body. It's almost like Michelangelo Absolutely. saying that, Michael, that the human body is God's alphabet. Trevor Southie takes that alphabet and isolates it. Absolutely. To him and in his own time. I mean, when he's starting these in the 70s, it's kind of a he's an outsider in that he is addressing the contemporary world through what he saw the beauty, the absolute beautiful expression that's available in the human form. We should probably give a little bit of background for where Trevor Southey came from. So he's born in Rhodesia, which was now called Zimbabwe. And he was descended from um, um, colonists that that, 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 that that were sent there and farmers. And he goes briefly to England, but I don't think that was a significant part of his education. Do you know any differently um, than that? And he comes to Utah yeah. after that, but I don't know much about his education in England. He, yeah, I mean, he does most his primary and secondary schooling in his home in Rhodesia then. Yeah. And then um, he wants to pursue art. And so he goes to England for two years, and that is where he is in um, the Brighton Academy. He's in Sussex for a couple of years. And, um, you know, that's where he really becomes acquainted with, I mentioned before, the influence of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. He goes to the Tate, and then those paintings are kind of, you know, shunted off into the basement galleries, the darkness. And he just speaks of being transfixed by those. Uh, William Blake also... And I can see a lot of William Blake yeah, in his work because William Blake was sense, part of that that esoteric, that, that esoteric very power. symbolic use of the human figure. Yeah, he comes to BYU after, and and I'd read that he said he converted to the church um, after hearing a quartet of missionaries singing, which is interesting that an artistic experience would be a catalyst for him feeling the spirit and the desire to convert, and he does two degrees at BYU uh-huh. and he becomes a professor or an assi- he, he teaches until 1977. So I think he yeah. enters the school late sixties, graduates within a few years and continues to teach until 1977. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, he is a founding member of the Mormon art and belief movement, which is this, this group of boy, how do you describe the Mormon art and belief music? The real expert on this is, is are, well, they're still alive, many of them. You've got yeah. Jeremy Smith, Dennis Smith. You've got um, Vern Swanson, who is, who's part of this group, mm-hmm. who has played a significant role in both of our lives yeah. um, and, and has been a mentor to us as, as, through the Springville Museum of Art. 
And they create this kind of idealized community in Alpine Highland area where they're building homes and they're all farming and raising families together as potters, painters, sculptors. Mm-hmm. And he's teaching at BYU during this time. This idyllic community. Very visionary. Yeah. And and there's an interesting experience that um, that Trevor has shared where you're right in that he converts to the LDS church. Um, he actually returns to Africa after being in England. Okay. That's where he hears the missionaries is converted. And then he decides in 1965 that he's going to go to Zion. He's going to go to BYU and study art. And as he's traveling, he stops at the World's Fair in New York. Oh, this is right at the time yeah. when the World's Fair is taking place with Torvaldson and Harry Anderson's paintings and the and and the Vatican has brought over for the first time the Pietà by Michelangelo. Wow, what an, I exactly. had no idea this connection. Yes, 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 yes. You're you're exactly right. So he stops there, and he goes to the pavilion you just mentioned. The you know, Catholic Church has brought over um, Michelangelo's Pietà, and of course Trevor, being you know a devotee of Michelangelo, is just enraptured. And he goes to uh, the Mormon pavilion, the LDS Church pavilion, and is so disheartened, so really? disappointed um, does he by say what sp- he sees. Does he say specifically what what hits him? Why why he's? Um, I think for him, he, I mean, he is he is infused by what he sees as the profound beauty, the power of the LDS doctrine and its hmm. community, and he really just sees that the art is not where he feels like it could be to be expressing what he felt, what we have. And, and even wow. then the idea that it's not art being produced by LDS artists is something that he noted. And he said, so that you know, Torvaldsen is, is a 18th to 19th century Danish artist that Harry Anderson is seventh day Adventist. These are things that, that bother him. Yeah, in the sense that he he has this this desire, which translates so well to when he meets um, like-minded individuals at BYU, that they want to see LDS artists taking up their own doctrine, their own themes in a powerful contemporary way, and so he'll he'll cite that experience as a real kickoff for he wanted to be part of a renaissance of Mormon art. And as you said, he, he finds the right people at BYU in the late 60s. Um, and these two triptychs are such a product of that. They're almost, um, I mean, they're not very far away from that time period. Mm-mm. I mean, 1975, the one triptych is done. The other one, 1981. And do you know, do you know what they were originally made for as, an, as a... Uh, were they were they part of a competition? Were they on display? Were they a personal work? Were they commission? I mean, do they enter BYU fairly quickly? Do they go from a private collection to BYU, or is it something that that uh, we could find out more about? I'm still working out some of the research there. Yeah. Um. But I I know with the the resurrection we'll call it the resurrection triptych. Um, that one comes into the university collection in 1975, so about the time it's done. 
And then the Gethsemane triptych comes into our collection in 1989, donated by a collector, a private individual. So, um, yeah, with these, I'm not entirely sure if it was with the vision of some kind of commission or um, some kind of exhibit in mind, you know, a Mormon arts festival type thing, um, or just the fact that that he's he's dealing with these themes. He's interested in in giving an aesthetic voice to some of these moments. And with the resurrection triptych in particular, this is one where he really is playing with drapery quite a bit. This is really very very uh, baroque yeah. class uh, renaissance approach to using drapery as a compositional device as a symbolic device. Yeah, that struck me immediately how it's, strong the drapery is. And it's fantastic. I mean, he he includes some of the drapery of course in the Gethsemane piece that comes after, but with this resurrection piece, all three each panel takes up a unique dialogue. On the left panel, there is it's pure drapery. It's this this form kind of enshrouded and you can even tell that the form is Almost, you know, in a fetal position facing us. Yeah, it looks us. like, I was going to say, it looks like he's in a crouch or fetal position. It's incredible. And it's, yeah. it's, it's really jarring, not only because there's such a vigorous movement of or, or, uh, or, or folding. It's so dramatic the way he's done it. But also the coloring is very strong in it. And, and it's, it, it looks kind of haunting. It looks... A little, it's a little disturbing. It's not a super pleasant image. Death isn't super pleasant, right? And he's capturing that. Yeah, and this, I mean, there's that that womb like that chrysalis form, Ooh, and I it's like, like that. the, I mean, it, it could be this, the death. To me, it's this transformative moment. You know, Christ is in between death and resurrection. He is going to emerge, and we see him in the center panel. This is the victorious Christ. This is man. God perfected in Christ. And I mean, he stands frontal. This time his head is pointed directly at Mary, who's in the far right panel. But here Christ is, you know, not quite standing. Um, he's more hovering again in this timeless space. Yeah. But as, I, as I look at it, I'm wondering about, um, it, it, he would have lived at a time when there were a lot of competing visions of what Christ looked like. So he's yeah. painting this. You said this is 75. Mm -hmm. So Freeberg's paintings would have been out. The most circulated paintings would have been Freeberg and Harry Anderson at the time. And and then he's got his, his classmates who are doing... I don't know if any of them painted Christ as dramatically as he did. When I think of Gary Ernest Smith, he did do some early religious pieces... Um, they were they were somewhat symbolist and, and a little vaguer in their approach to the figure. But I don't know where this Christ comes from. When I look at this, this does not look like like um, the Robert Barrett that would come or the Simon Dewey or or Gary Cap or any of those. There is no other Christ in the lexicon of Mormonism that looks at all like this to me. And I have no idea where he comes from. Do you have I mean, do we want to speculate? There's probably no way without actually having him here. And he may not even be able to tell us. I, I wish I knew. But exactly, this is there is no beauty we should desire of him. I mean, with mm. this Christ, he is wiry, 
he's playing. Um, he truly is a carpenter's son. And what makes that you is say so that he's striking. A car- what makes you say that he's a carpenter's son? Now that I actually take from something Trevor himself said. Okay. Is that this, you know, this is evoking that simple carpenter's son. Okay, um, so this is not an idealized, it's not idealized figure. It's it's someone who kind of wiry, a person who's been scraped up a little bit, gotten splinters. In addition to his untoward, this is I this is so. this is a working man. Yeah, I think so. What what's interesting to me and is if we look at his figure, I mean he he has musculature. As I talk to people about this painting, this triptych, I should say, is actually on display at the museum in one of our exhibitions right now, um, part of our permanent collection exhibition to magnify the Lord. And often as I talk to viewers, I ask them what stands out, and they, they'll speak of Christ. Um, if you look closely at the paint, his arms, you can see the veins. Trevor's done a lot of brushwork to make it looked like his veins are just alive. This is man right. quickened. He is enlivened. Wow. He's not, you know, he has overcome mortality. He is the perfect man. And you see hints, people also pick this out. You can see hints of geometric lines kind of overlaying across yeah, you his can... torso, um, a triangle shape that goes up around his head. And to me, knowing about the Mormon art and belief movement, um, Professor Dale Fletcher was at BYU at the time, and he was part of this. He wrote the manifesto, a manifesto about Mormon art and Mormon art and belief, and they were very, very attuned to the idea of sacred geometry, the body as um, you know, drawing on this ancient canon of beauty that could bespeak perfection. Also, the same canon that many argued was used for sacred temples. So this idea of perfected man, a sacred space, and I believe that you know the yeah, square would, and the circle forms there yeah. allude to this perfection of Christ in the resurrected. State. Could could also refer to the Trinity, the air, the 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 um, with the three points of that triangle, and it's it's pointing upward even though it goes out of the frame. It's I, I do want to ask about its its inclusion in the exhibition of to magnify the Lord, the. Um, when you go into that room, there are a lot of big and impressive paintings in that room. There's a painting of 12-year-old Christ in the Temple by Ernst Zimmerman. There's an Ari Sheffer that's there, Ari Sheffer, that's very impressive. And in both of those, I think you would you could you could say would be pretty traditional, right? People would, yeah. would expect to see yeah. those in a religious art exhibition in their style. They both borrow on very common um traditional western depictions of christ and they're they're both wonderful this is a real contrast to those when you go in that room and i know you do this tour a lot and you have some control over it i'm sure of what you want to see but i'm sure that you part of that has been informed by what you think people are interested in and what they want to talk about so what is people's reaction to trevor southey and seeing his work in a room like that do do certain people gravitate and some don't? Do how is it something that people are immediately drawn to because of the contrast? I mean, I, I guess I'll just let you answer. How how do people yeah. react to Trevor Southey? I I've loved it a lot having this piece as part of that particular gallery, um, and people are very compelled by this piece. 
in fact, you noted other paintings that we have in that space, one of them being, you know, a, a masterwork of German 19th century painting. And there are times where in having limited time in a tour, we might say, okay, well, we definitely want to hit you know, the painting of the 12-year-old Christ. Let's take people straight there. Well, that leads people right by Southey's triptych. Right, it's on your left, and I think, as you pass into that I room. have learned that I can't do that because there are always people that are stopping and and staring and looking at this piece. And and I think the thing that is so so compelling and draws them in is first, there's some recognition here. They can start to pick about, pick out, okay, you know, this is Christ, and that's Mary. I mean, even the title alone will tell them that. And then they're they're trying to create this relationship. You know, what is what are their gazes saying? What do those flowers mean? People are always asking. They want to understand, you know, the levels that that Salvi has conceptually woven into this piece. This is something I think he got and his generation got that fascinates me. And I don't Maybe it's unfair to say that we don't do it as much. But I I think that as as Christians in a literate age, when you could argue that I'm not just talking about Mormons in general, I'm talking about just religious people in general who are religious right now are maybe more literate than any other time in the history of the world, right? The 19th century is really when the population of Europe and the Western world started going from, I think at the beginning of the century, 30% of the English were literate, and at the end of it, 90% of it. But for much of religious history, very few people could read the Bible themselves. And so they were they were dependent on art to tell the story in an extremely overt way. Mm-hmm. And I think the art that's produced for that people is different for illiterate people. You could do, for, for people who are familiar with the Book of Mormon, you could do a stick figure on fire. And everybody would say, oh, it's a Benedi, right? And yeah. that gives you some freedom as an artist <laughs> to work off the expectations and, and education, the wisdom of your audience to interpret for themselves. And one of the things I like about Trevor Salvi in this work and in almost every work I've seen is the enormous respect he has for audience. Mm-hmm. He understands that they're going to see... Christ, they're going to see these overlaid geometric symbols. They're going to see Mary. They're going to see the 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 rose, and and they're going to see this this uh, is it a lily? That's what we're looking at, and they're going to immediately start making assumptions symbolically. That don't that he's not going to spell out for them. They want always. to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you're right. He doesn't. He will never unpack everything. No. And he's even said of this piece, he's amazed at what he learns as people tell him about Interesting. the piece. That like, go- he's open. He wants it to be an ongoing dialogue. That He gives us these symbols, and he has, of course, his own notions. So he doesn't even right. see himself as being the final interpreter of the work. You know, he... I, I we, we would be amiss if we were to um, to talk about what, what ended up with uh, Trevor Southey, what he did with his life. He, um, beyond these works, um, he... Um, I just read an obituary of him. I, I did as much prep for this as I possibly could reading everything. And, I, <laughs> yeah. and I'd met him several times and had yeah. several long conversations with him. He's very easy to talk to and a very positive person. But the the la- last article I read was when he died in 2015. He died in Salt Lake City in, um, after he'd had 
Um, he had Parkinson's and he yeah. also had pro- prostate cancer, I believe. And um, in, he'd had four children in 19, and, and in 1982, he and his wife divorced and he came out as being gay mm-hmm. at, at very early time. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. for someone to come out as gay, uh, who was a member of the church, and he moves to San Francisco, and he continues to he continued to do figurative work, and he continued to do f- both overtly religious and non overtly religious. I don't think you could ever say that it wasn't religious. I think it was always a religious element to his work, but he was when I read the obituary, and I guess this is the point I was getting to, the obituary that was in the Salt Lake Tribune. They didn't talk at all about him being religiously involved, except as something that was in the past and not a part of his life. And they didn't talk about his religious fervor at all. Mm-hmm. And he, and I get it. We live at we we live at a time when um, that really is newsworthy that he he came out as gay and that he was he was adopted and maintained in the community for a long time. Yeah. But he never courted controversy as an individual. It didn't seem like. And he always was a very positive person. He and he always maintained. He never disavowed this overtly religious art. No. He always didn't. No. He never saw really a conflict personally between his belief and his homosexuality in what he was doing. And I don't know how much we can go into it without having him personally here. I don't know, but I do know that 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 may not be the narrative that's always told that he was a religious artist. That's where I was going with that. Yeah, I mean, I think you look at any of his work and he is, by nature, he is a philosopher, a poet, you know, a visual poet. And there's so much spirituality and religion um, in so much of what what he's always doing, no matter what the subject is. There's that sense. And and he I mean, he spoke openly about the wrenching. struggle that he had um in the fact that he he was homosexual and yet he he loved so many of the doctrines of the church um yeah for him one of the real captivating things was the idea that we were little literal offspring of a god that we have that potential and and to me that that dovetailed so nicely with what he says about his love of you know, humanism, the human spirit and that embrace of the Renaissance in that yeah. way. And he, I mean, yes, he, he ended up leaving the church and, and he speaks of the sadness and the pain of that, of course. Um, but he, he never had animosity towards the church and, and truly, I mean, he, he mentioned, um, in a few of his writings too, that, you know, those doctrines still meant something to him and he does, Oh, some fine religious work um, for the St. Francis Hospital. Um, some stunning. He gets a commission to St. Francis Hospital in San Francisco. Chapel. No, I, I want to say it's in Minnesota. Okay. Or Montana. Oh, and he wasn't. He it, wasn't. Um, he, it continues as a theme that spirituality and and um, and I, a I think philosophy I'm, to it. One of the things that I, I I wanted to make sure that we emphasize is I after having met him and and seen his work and 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 talked with others is that he defies just a, an easy categorization he's yeah. not he's not um just a gay artist he's not just a religious artist he's not just uh someone who was once active and had a complicated relationship with the church right he is and he he defied in his lifetime it seemed like when i talked with him when i talked with people about him 
he defied easy categorization deliberately. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's so attractive about him and his art is as as we go forward, and even now, I see that his popularity is only growing. I see more and more Trevor Southies coming out in the open um, in in collections, private collections and public. People, I, I've had more conversations about Trevor Southie art in the past two or three years. And he's been productive. And, and that was... That's unfortunately the reality for a lot of artists. After they die, they become better known, right? <laughs> right. How many how many Trevor Southies does the church does uh does BYU Museum of Art have? Do you know? You know, we have we have a large number of his of his prints. He was a very skilled he, printmaker, really marvelously. What are the subjects of those kinds I of prints? Were they were they a variety of different kinds of things? They're a variety. I mean, a lot of them. How would we say speak to Aspects of the human experience. I mean, he he often is depicting, you know, family relationships, you know, motherhood, fatherhood. Um, we probably, I know we have about 30 okay. or more pieces in the BYU collection. Okay. And this is the one that's on display right now of Christ, the, the 1975 Correct. triptych is the one that's currently on mm-hmm. display. And, and I've got to say a, a short anecdote because it's it's on display and um, in this exhibit that showcases, you know, six centuries, we call it, of art and devotion. So looking at expressions of faith and belief um, spanning the Western Christian tradition. So oh, when was it? It was in December. We had the director of a graduate center an art center in New York City visiting us. Um, And she, I was touring her around, so I took her down to that display. And um, that was the first gallery we went into. And we looked around. um, You know, she was really, really impressed by Minerva Teichert. Uh, We've got a Teichert down there. And then she saw some of these European artists that she's more familiar with. And we came to this piece and she stopped and was silent and she asked you know who is this artist tell me about this and we were talking and she just she just said the people in new york would not believe this because she said for me this she's like this is the most powerful contemporary expression of religion i've seen of christ and she said i'm jewish and I, I am absolutely riveted by this, by this Christ and what is taking place here, both artistically and then mm-hmm. I think the psychology of it really impressed her. And, and I just loved that. She wasn't familiar with any of the Mormon art tradition before that day. And she had seen one Minerva Tiger, which she liked. And then she saw this and she thought, you know, there is really rich potential um, taking place here. It's fascinating that that would be the one that stuck out to her. And it really makes me wonder, um, well, first, it makes me wonder what place he fits in the universe of Mormon art in general, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know if we can, we tried to answer a little bit about where he came from. And that's not an easy answer, I guess. We've come down to that he's he's influenced by the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. He's looking at William Blake. He's looking at old masters like Michelangelo. He's making deliberate choices to not 
be like the artist that he would have seen in the World's Fair, potentially. But And he's teaching until 1977 at BYU. Mm-hmm. Does anyone pick up his torch and run with it? Does he have the we know of an obvious follow, follower who takes and is the Trevor Southey too? <laughs> that we know of? You know, and if so, why not? Is it, what, is it, what does it say about our culture that we didn't have a whole school of Trevor Southies. You know, I'm not I'm not aware of any real, I mean direct, we could say, you know, offspring or any real followers that that follow in his same mode of expression. It's very very interesting. Yeah, and I, I know he taught. I know that he and and I would you know who would be an interesting person to ask about this would be somebody like Wolf Barsh. Who would yeah. have been? Who would have been yeah. there of that generation? Who would have been teaching at BYU and and Joe Ostroff and some of these other people who are at BYU? Because I just I I wonder sometimes if you were to look at Mormon art in a Darwinian sense of <laughs> of, of 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 a competition for aesthetics of what becomes a dominant strain and what doesn't. Um, and I'm not. It's it's not a negative thing. It's just that that there are certain things that play well to a larger mass audience because they can be used as illustration mm-hmm. more easily or because they're communicated better in print, right? And and then there are things that need to be seen in person. And I I wonder if as and maybe maybe I'm wrong. This is something that I want to ask you about BYU. It seems to me that this is a place that BYU is starting to really shine in. It's that there has been for a long time the prime experience of people seeing art in the church has been in print or on a screen, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And not everybody can come to Utah and go to BYU. Sure. And, but the museum has now taken some of these pieces that we're familiar with, Carl Block, Heinrich Hoffman, and brought them, and now people have had a physical experience with them at the museum. I am surprised... And how many people more now than it seems to me in the past are physically going to BYU to have an experience with real art, mm-hmm. right? It seems to be one thing that you, you do an amazing job of displaying things and people seem to be responding. You have been at BYU how long now? Ooh, four and a half years. Four and a half years. Yeah. What has been your experience with the kind of audience that comes to BYU? Who comes and sees art and takes your tour? Oh, that is, I mean, as a museum, we're always wondering about audience. Yeah. This is the same question we're we're asking. But but we have, you mentioned, you know, the two exhibits that we've done in the past several years with Carl Block and other European masters, Heinrich Kaufmann, Franz Schwartz of these devotional altarpieces and works that we're very familiar with. I mean, they they were real watershed moments for us. People came to the museum in unprecedented numbers to have an experience with these pieces. And and our museum, I mean, we draw in of course BYU itself. We're there on the campus. A lot and, of students. And a lot of we could say patrons of BYU. You know, alumni, families, um, our community also come to us and you know with that something i've noticed that is so intriguing to me and i've even had colleagues at other institutions comment on this 
is that our audience, in terms of our religious exhibits, but I think even broader than that, they come with a different, we'll say gaze, a gaze, a look. Um, They come with kind of a devotional mindset that they will look at a religious work of art and rather than many viewers who may see a wonderful, um, you know, depiction from the life of Christ at a museum somewhere in the world and say, oh, that's a great example of this period of art history, beautiful paint, interesting subject. I think our audience automatically comes with the expectation of connecting, somehow feeling something. And that devotional mindset, I think, is very interesting because that's what I that's what I experience as I interact with a lot of audiences in the gallery. And of course, we we invite that we're one institution that is unique in, you know, in the nation, I think, because we aren't afraid to say we exhibit art, not just as masterworks from art history, but as pieces that are devotional. They were then, and they can still resonate that way now, and we're not afraid to show them and expect that. So you're, you're, this is something that, you know, I lived for, for a few years near the British Museum, and, mm. and I was able to go nice. on a regular basis um, to, to the museum. And the, the, it struck me, when you'd go in particular to the, um, to the Asian galleries, and you would see... Um, Shiva and Pavardi statues or Ganesh statues in the Asian galleries, there would sometimes be at the end of the day flower offerings or food offerings mm, mm-hmm. or something that was offered at the works. And I remember hearing Neil McGregor, the director of the museum at the time, in a speech say, we have to always remember that even though we are a scholarly institution that is... Uh, founded in in um, the um, preservation of these objects and the understanding of their cultures, that some people still see these as devotional objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if you read their texts, you would never know that, right? They were very cold, cold scholarly written texts that that they had next to, you know, a Shiva and Pavardi relief, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I wonder. How does that, it seems the, the equation is a little different at BYU, right? It's you embrace the fact that they're devotional and that directly informs maybe how you write and display things. Does it? Is that true? I mean, how do you, could you write the labels at BYU if you were working at the National Gallery in DC? And, and if you couldn't, how, what is the difference between how you would write a label? Uh, yeah, I mean, it definitely is part of how I'm approaching our exhibitions. I think for me, it's actually finding the balance between um, the implied understanding I think our audience might bring versus I want it to also be legible and meaningful for those that, you know, may not know this scripture story, you know, off the off the top of their head. Right. So I mean, there is there's always that balance, but. We're so mindful of it. And I want, I mean, you speak of the labels. I want the labels to have, you know, a weaving of, you know, this is, this is a scholarly piece. I want you to learn something about the artistic merit of this. Right. But I also want to show you how the art can bring out an incredible story, um, an incredible meaning about a doctrine, a teaching. Um, so it's, it's a balance I'm always working with. 
always working with. But in general, I think we are we are ready and willing to take up the approach that these will mean something religiously, and we're going to display them that way. Does the audience ever push back on works? I guess what I mean by that is if you, let's say you put up an image of a crucifixion, uh-huh. right? And and it's something that, that uh, there are a lot of artworks in BYU Museum of Art that are by non-LDS artists that that are traditional images. And sure. you do have some crucifixions that, yeah. are, that, yeah. that are up and on display. But Mormons have this really weird um, relationship we do with some some iconography that we label a, a phrase that I hear all the time that I still have a hard time unpackaging is that something's too Catholic or too that which the more you analyze it the more uh, the harder it is to actually you know figure out maybe exactly what that means all, always even though maybe we have a general idea of what that can mean what do you what do you do you have people who who as an audience that you'll put an image out and you'll find, oh man, maybe, maybe the, I, you, no matter how much context we put around that, <laughs> they're not going to, and I'm not trying, I'm not trying to stir controversy. I guess what I'm trying to figure <laughs> out is what is BYU's relationship with teaching an audience something that they, that they're yeah. not used to necessarily seeing and contextualizing that versus, you know, leading them to something that maybe they're not ready. Not not introducing something you're not ready for yet. Ooh, yeah. I think I mean this this exhibition that we have. That sounds a little pa- patronizing. I don't mean to <laughs> say that the audience will be ready for this someday. Sorry. They're so. they. I think we're I think we're ready. Yeah. And that's part of what we did with this exhibit in particular is, um, for lack of a better term, that idea of building bridges. Maybe iconographically. You're right. There's a lot of symbolism we're just not familiar with in the LDS church as much, and there's some that is less comfortable for us, um, simply because we may not understand the dialogues that led to that kind of imagery at the time. Um, I think a great example in this in this space is uh, a 15th century wooden sculpture that we have of the dead Christ. It was an entombment sculpture, and it's I'm, truly, this is not something that we see in our church houses and we were not really used to to having full-size sculptures of the of the dead Christ with wounds um and it's it's not one we've displayed very often and so it was we had conversations going into the exhibit you know how will this be received how can we how can we mediate between this piece and people's you know, hesitancy to see this form yeah. and to know if it's comfortable or okay um, to depict Christ this way? And you know, in the context of the exhibit, we're showing how these works of art were really, in this particular section, were means through which um, the faithful or devotees were intended to really come to a greater love. For the savior and with this sculpture we try and approach it by by you know showing that at this time in the medieval church mindset those wounds those gaping wounds that are so garish sometimes to us they actually symbolized a direct conduit to the heart to the savior's heart to his love so it's not the gruesome pain that they really it was more than that it was the love that was the way that he loved them 
was to suffer the way they suffered in their own lives. It was the medieval times, you know, plague and war and death and, and to see that. And then we have it contrasted just behind that piece is the portrait of Christ by, um, by Rembrandt and his circle, which takes place maybe 150 years later. And Rembrandt's goal was to show Christ's love, not through what he did, not his suffering, but through who he was, his yeah. very countenance. It's very, you know, post-Reformation, it's very different language. So yeah. I think trying to draw those those understandings to help people become more attuned to the symbolic language of faith in the Christian tradition. And I, I mean, that's one thing I love about um, what Trevor's work does is it builds on that same dialogue of, you know, how can we show these moments of, of Christ's um, suffering and redemption in a new language, in a form that will make us stop and think about what that really means for each of us. Well, before we let you go, um, I want to hear about these two exhibitions. We've got the one that's 600 years of Christian art, of, re, of, of religious art. Yes. That's been on for, for it's, it's been several months now, but it's going uh-huh. until when? Ooh, it's a, it's a long-term exhibit. We want people to come and come again and come again and again. So it'll be up through the summer of 2019. I'm I'm one of those people who, after being in a museum for an hour, I get exhausted because I'm so inundated with <laughs> yeah. images that I that I have been to that exhibit particularly I think five or six times, and I still don't feel, think I've seen a third of everything because I'll go there and I'll get caught in one thing. So I'm with you. I think that is one of those ex- exhibits that if it were up for ten years, it may not be enough time. I'm grateful that you've committed to putting it up for that long. <laughs> I'm glad. So what are the, the, now we'd mentioned in the intro that there were two exhibits that have opened in the past month. Uh-huh. Um, what are they? Oh, we opened an exhibit on uh, June 9th of you know, turn of the century photography. The exhibit is called No Dull Days, um, James Alfred Meyer's Turn of the Century America, Okay. So with this exhibit, it was you know stepping a little bit outside of you know the religious context, of course. Yeah. But it was, it's great. It's a small town photographer. He lived in the same town in Pennsylvania for forty years, from eighteen eighty five to nineteen twenty nine, and he takes the pictures. Um, and so you see America going through this incredible transition, you know, from horse and buggy to. You know, airplanes and fancy cars and straight through the dust bowl just, kind of things yeah. and the, the the and and the depression. It's a rich body of work, so you get a sense of of America, of the daily life, and he has some exquisite portraiture. You know, he was a studio huh. photographer and really capturing. So people would go in there when they got married, life. when they yeah. had graduations, and you capture their real their real uh, milestone moments in their yeah. life. Yeah. What's so the other a, one? That was a fun one to work on. The one that we're opening this Friday, June 30th, is called The Interpretation Thereof, um, Contemporary LDS Art and Scripture. So this is something so, you spearheaded as the curator yeah. of religious art. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the general idea of this exhibit was, I was thinking about, you know, scripture, I think in our LDS um culture we we sort of know that we approach scripture understanding that it was is written as poetry symbolic language rich meaning layered 
um, concepts in scripture and and we're often taught and instructed to approach it as that and I was thinking about you know visual art and oftentimes contemporary art requires to me that same process of approaching it with the idea of you know spending time looking for layers looking for symbols being willing to take the time and to not really know everything so did you and pick- to find that and so um so my idea was to find some of our contemporary artists who had works directly inspired by a verse of scripture and to see these interpretations many of which are highly symbolic metaphor are coming out in these pieces and then to to just play with that idea of interpreting it see how they've interpreted it and how we work with their symbolic visual language to to find our own interpretation so you from your time in springville and and also byu but i assume at springville in particular because it's such a hub of contemporary art i'm sure you knew a lot of the artists how did the exhibition come together did you did you have so many works already in mind that you'd seen through the years and then add to those through conversation. How, how does, how do when you put it, I'm sure a lot of artists and others would like to know, how does one, when they do a museum show of contemporary art, make that happen? I mean, just in a, in a, in a take, take 90 seconds or less and tell <laughs> okay. us, how do you do it's this? It's hard. Because I know it takes months and it months. Is, it is so challenging uh, because, you know, I had this idea actually, you know, years ago. When and some I of first, these calendars that you have go, you have five and six year calendars for exhibitions. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And so, so hosting one of these things is, you got to fit it in, and you got to think tricky. about it far in advance. I'm sorry, I won't interrupt you. No, 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 you're fine. And so, you know, as I played with this idea, I did have a few artists whose whose pieces I felt like, yeah, they really dovetail with with my my concept, um, because I I wanted to deliberately look to art that in some way had, you know, symbolic meaning and and style even that might be a little bit less narrative, less overt. And, you know, as we have a set window of time in which we can, you know, search search the world for art that might fit this idea and then, you know, to get to get things set in place and and it's very challenging because the way our burgeoning LDS art scene is, I mean, I would find new artists all the time. I'm still finding new artists. So you'd have I've, to at some point say, okay, that's I it. I just have to stop. And, I have to stop here. And I thought about that because if I were to do this exhibit in a, a year, a year and a half, it could be a completely different mix of artists. The way that they are producing and the way that they're conceptualizing themes. And it's very exciting. And but there, then there's a choice between making a commitment to do a show and hosting it and actually doing it versus continually like exploring and exploring and yeah, exploring. Yeah, right? and my object lists are always too long. I always have to cut things back drastically because um, there is, there's so much to work with. How many artists and how many works are a part of the show? And what's um, it titled specifically? So we Again. have 30 artists. 30 artists. And I want to say there's 44, 45 works. Okay. And it's called The Interpretation Thereof, Contemporary LDS Art and Scripture. How long will it be on show? It's going to be up through March 31st. So it will be up for a while. And we're excited about that. 
Well, we've covered a lot of ground, but not nearly as much as I want to cover with you. I know, gonna, I can't believe our time's up. have to have you <laughs> come back. Um, I j- I'm just, I'm so grateful that you come up. You're one of these people who, you're so positive and you're, oh, and you're in the center of so many things that I could just bend your ear and hear what you have to say, let you bend mine for hours. So thank you so much. For oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. I'd like to thank Ashley Whitaker, the Roy and Carol Christensen Curator of Religious Art at BYU Museum of Art, for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society, where you can see the two works we discussed, Intercession at Gethsemane and Jesus and Mary the Moment After, on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information on the exhibitions currently taking place at BYU Museum of Art. The second triptych that we talked about, Jesus and Mary the Moment After, is on view on the lower level of BYU Museum of Art as part of their permanent collection's current exhibition. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening. Thank you.